Uh, let me go ahead and pray before we get started. Uh, Father, Lord, we uh, just thankful, God, that we can come here this morning to worship you, to hear your, your word. And even with this lesson where we're confronted with false religion, we're, we're confronted with corruption of your holy word, God, help us to discern how to deal with this and, and help reveal these truths that we're going to talk about this morning to us in a way that humbles us, that even helps us to, to self-reflect, to look in our own hearts. God, we know that your word says Satan knows your word. He loves to twist your word. He is the great deceiver. He is the liar. Lord, it is very important that we can just understand your truths as they are meant to be understood, but we need your help with that. And that's my prayer this morning, God, that you would help us with this. Pray that you would feel the discussion this morning and your Holy Spirit would enlarge our hearts and just also help us to comprehend all this. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, great. We're continuing our series in uh, The Unsaved Christian, a book by Dean and Sarah. We're kind of shifting gears a little bit starting this week and next week. Now we're talking about barriers, essentially, barriers to reaching cultural Christians. So we, we've kind of, I split this in chunks where we wanted to first look under the hood of cultural Christianity. What is it? How prevalent is it in our culture? What are some of the, the doctrines, if you will, that a cultural Christian would adhere to or what would they believe? That's what we've been spending the last few weeks talking about. So this week and next week, now we're going to start talking about the barriers of of interacting with a cultural Christian. Um, I was talking to a gentleman about this a couple days ago. This is a tough thing, right? One, we don't want to, you know, cross that line where we're just like, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. That, that's not our job to be telling people that they're not saved. That's, that's all God's business, right? But at the same time, what's the response of somebody? Somebody asked me the other day about, you know, cultural Christians, and they, they made a comment saying, well, a lot of this time we're going to be dealing this, with this with family members or people we know, right? And I was like, yeah, that's a really good point. Why is that? Well, because we know our friends well. We know our family well. We see them in different seasons. We see the way they react to things. Getting to know somebody is being able to see that fruit, right? And that's usually who we're going to be dealing with when we, if and when we want to confront this. You know, if you meet someone off the street, and you've never seen this person, I would hope that you wouldn't be within one minute of meeting them unless they just said something outrageous. I hope at that time you wouldn't be like, well, that's a cultural Christian. That person's not safe. But regardless, it's an awkward, very hard thing to do because what do you do? Where do you start in conversation? Um, do you say, well, I don't think that you're saved or I'm not seeing fruit right here. And then that would spur the, the conversation and, and make it crash land somewhere that you don't want it to go. Do you just say, okay, that's the other extreme, right? Do you just go, great, you're a believer. When deep down you're just wrestling with, man, I'm just, they don't go to church. The, the, their, their mouth is foul. There's just not fruit there. And I'm not okay with that inside, but what do I do? So that's what we're tackling this week and next week is we're, we're going to identify these barriers and hopefully have some tips on how we can come to a, a, an evangelical conversation, a gospel-centered conversation with those whom we may think are cultural Christians or fit into this category. So how many of you guys use your phone for navigation? 
Okay, keep your hands up real quick. Bob, you're a liar. You go, yeah. <laughs> Most everybody, I would say, right? Have, have you noticed how much we rely on that now? Like, are you pretty reliant on your navigation on your phone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's great, right? Give somebody me a map and I'm I'm lost. <laughs> so yeah, we rely on our on our phone. I do all the time. Even if I'm going to someone someone's house I've been to like maybe six or eight times and I, I'm kind of familiar, I'll be like, I'll just plug it in anyway. And I'm just so reliant on that navigation. Um, well, Dean and Sarah in, in one of his chapters shares a story about this that he was in New Orleans traveling. And he kind of knows the area, but downtown New Orleans is, is busy, and he dropped his phone. And apparently it messed up the GPS on his phone. So when he picked it up, it showed him where the hotel was, but it didn't show him where he was. And so, you know, he's thinking, like, this doesn't really help me. I, I can see the hotel. I know where it's at, but I don't know how to get there. And so he called the receptionist, and she said, well, here, let me give you the address. You can plug it into your phone. <laughs> and he's like... He's like, that's my problem. It doesn't work. The address doesn't help me. So basically, he was talking about a, a vague general direction is, is what he ran into with the biggest obstacle. He needed a clear starting point. He needed to know where he was at, where the hotel was at, to get a straight path to get there. And he uses it's a great illustration, and he uses it to say that this is the biggest obstacle when we confront cultural Christians is we have a vague general direction. We need a clear starting point. So how do we get to that clear starting point? Um, this is difficult, as I mentioned, because cultural Christians can have what I call a sock drawer type of theology, right? Meaning it's a whole mix of things. There's some biblical truth in there, maybe. There's some philosophy in there, maybe. There's just some whatever they think to be true mixed in with that. So where do you start? Where do you start with the sock drawer type of theology? And Sarah writes, the hallmark of cultural Christianity is typically familiarity or even comfort with biblical principles without a sense of personal need for salvation. So this is what we're doing here. We're, we're, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with someone who would be familiar with Christian things, right? We've talked about this a lot. So they're familiar with Christian things. Therefore, they consider themselves to be a Christian. So why are we having an evangelical conversation here? I'm good. I'm good with God. You're just a little more extreme than I am. You go to church and that's great. I don't need to go to church, but God and I we're good. And this is what I would say makes evangelism so much harder than it would be with someone of a different religion, with someone who's Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. Why? Well, because when you evangelize someone from a different religion like this, you're provided with a clear starting point from jump. Can any of you guess what maybe that, what that is? What's a common starting point with a Mormon or with a Jehovah's Witness or a Buddhist? Your belief, unbelief, basically, is the starting point, right? Yeah, because you know they're not going to sit here and tell you that they're a Christian. They're going to oppose it. They're going to say, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe the Holy Bible. So your clear starting point with other religions is unbelief. Well, Christians, comparing these with the religious teachings of the Bible is, is what provides that clear starting point, right? So cultural Christians claim they, they know the Bible, they admire the Bible, they admire Christianity like any good American would. So they're not atheists. They wouldn't call themselves an atheist. They believe in God. Uh, they attend Easter and Christmas service from time to time. They're good, loving people, right? They listen to Christian radio. They watch The Chosen. They love The Chosen. They love Christian media. So why would they be having an evangelical conversation? 
So it's these factors that make it complicated. So let's talk about barriers. Uh, one common and awkward challenge, and, and I'm learning this more and more of being a pastor, is, is how do you get um, people who love your sermon, who come up and are just like, man, I love your sermon, to understand that you're really talking about them. Right? You run into these awkward scenarios. How many of you have seen that Paul Washer, that famous Paul Washer clip where he's like, I'm talking about you? Right? So he's, he's putting, it's a youth conference, and he's just putting them on blast. You know, like, you just love the culture, and you say that you're a Christian, and you do this, and da-da-da, and everyone just starts cheering and clapping. And then he awkwardly just, like, mic drop, shuts it down, and says, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. And the whole conference just goes, you know, it goes just just silent. But even in our own hearts, how many times have you listened to a sermon and been like, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this, right? Oh, I wish my neighbor could hear this, <laughs> It's so much easier to think of somebody else than, than really run that through our heart first, right? Um, so Dean and Sarah was giving us another example. He was preaching a sermon on this one time, and he was going to use chairs as an illustration. So he set up one chair, and he said, this chair is, is chair number one. This is the person who wholeheartedly places their faith in Jesus um, for salvation and repentance of sins. And he's asking his congregation, which chair would you sit in? So here's chair one. Chair two, this is an unbeliever. Somebody who wholeheartedly rejects Christ, would say they're not a Christian. And then here's chair number three. And chair number three represents the false believer, a cultural Christian. And he said he spent most of the sermon talking about chair number three. And again, it was a great exhortation to his church of which chair would you be sitting in as he broke down what false assurance may be, what, what a cultural Christian looks like. Well, one of his members came up to him, and he was this member was uh, was pretty upset because he knew Dean was going to preach on this topic, so he invited a handful of friends that, you know, say they're Christian, they don't go to church ever. He wanted them to specifically listen to this message. So they hear the sermon, and then this guy takes his buddies out to lunch after church, and he's just has anxiously been waiting to, to have a an opener to talk about this. And here was the opener. They both heard this sermon from Dean. So he, he meets with them. He's like, what did you think? Which chair would you sit in? And they all said, which chair do you think? Number one. Number one. Yeah. Oh, that was a great message, man. We're chair number one, definitely. And so, <laughs> so this member was extremely upset about this. And so this tells us that there's barriers, right? There, there are barriers that we're working with in, in just even understanding. And that's what we're going to go through here. Um, first of all, theologically, we know the largest barrier, of course, is not having the Holy Spirit. That's for anybody, right? That we know the truths of God cannot be rightly discerned without being born again and having the Holy Spirit. This is the biggest one. Now, we can't look into somebody's heart and know if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in there, so that makes it difficult. But just wanted to point out that the number one barrier would be not having this Holy Spirit. But this is also a good reminder that the best thing we can do in any of these situations, and this is an encouragement to you, if during the Sunday school series you have a loved one or, or someone you really know that you, you keep thinking about that, you're like, man, this person I know is a cultural Christian. I would love for them to just, the light bulb to go on for them to be saved. The best thing you can do is pray, right? That's the most powerful tool in the toolbox that we have is prayer because God is the heart changer. So a little encouragement there. But there's other common bears that do get in the way and act as stumbling blocks um, for cultural Christians. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 
20 through 23. Is that in your notes? Yes. Okay, great. All right. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 23. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why do you think the gospel was a stumbling block to Jews here in this passage? They couldn't believe that he was the Messiah? Yeah? Any other thoughts on why was Jesus Christ a stumbling block, as it says here to the Jews? Yeah? Yeah, that's a big one. Took away their additions to salvation. Yeah, I like that. Any other thoughts? They thought they were in. Yeah, and what this Messiah was saying was kind of against what they were doing at that time, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a big one, Jack. Yeah. So you see what's happening is for the Jews, they already had locked in their mind what was true to them as far as making it or being good with God. It was already a done deal in their mind. Their mind was not open to the truth that Christ himself, God himself in the flesh is sitting here telling them. It was just bouncing off because in their mind, they already had it locked as far as that they're good. And I think we could say the same thing that we're dealing with with cultural Christians. A lot of them can be locked in their mindset. Um, and we're going to talk about a few of those those things, those markers, or those things that can create this uh, this false assurance. So Dean and Sarah provides us a list of common barriers that act as these stumbling blocks. The first one is belief. Belief is a barrier that acts as a stumbling block. Now, I know this seems like a paradox, right? That belief in God is a barrier. But how do you think this can be so? Yeah, belief in the wrong God. Yep. I would even like flip that on its head or just not being belief in the wrong God, but belief in who you think God is. Same thing, right? Yeah. Different way to say it. Yeah. So belief, if, if you're locked in your head of this is who God is, um, and, and that picture of who you think God is is not what the Bible says about God, then you're already off. Uh, Dean writes, cultural Christians believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that his mom's name was Mary. They may even have words like faith and hope in their home decor. Just below, belief-inspired signs is where the nativity scene is set up for the month of December. They can also tell you exactly what is celebrated on Easter Sunday. Knowing stories of the Bible and believing they actually happened are commonplace in cultural Christianity. But is just intellectual sin enough? Is belief just enough? No. We know that the demons even believe, right? Here in James chapter 2. If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So another barrier here we have is values. Uh, good people go to heaven. 
We talked a lot about this in the last few weeks, so won't belabor that. But values is the second barrier here. A big one. Heritage. I'm a third generation Christian. Right? My grandpa was a pastor. My dad was a deacon for 15 years. So I'm good to go. We're, we're a Christian household. We've been Christians for generations. How does heritage act as a barrier? Pride. Pride. Yeah, good one, Ellie. Entitlement. Entitlement. I'm sorry, say that again? Takes away personal responsibility, yeah. Isn't it similar to, uh, we could say, the Jews, right? Of God's chosen people. I'm circumcised. I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm an Israelite. I'm in. We're God's people. Kind of the same thing like proximity. Like you're saying that you were just all like we're equal to you and like equal to the celebrity and power status. Like if it runs off of them and we're using it to orbit. So like at my grandpa, he never like went to it as a definite imperative to just transfer it. Yeah, it's a good point. Proximity. Uh, on this, Dean writes, in cultural Christianity, it's common for one to see himself as being born into Christianity rather than actually being born again. That is a very good point. It's common for one to see himself as being born into Christianity rather than actually being born again. I remember being told as a teen at youth camp that God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. It's a good quote there. See, we can celebrate a legacy of faith. We should. That's a wonderful thing. Praise God that you could look back upon generations and say, we're, we're Christian family. Like, this is fantastic. But faith, we know that a faith that is inherited is really, it's not a faith at all. And that can be a common stump, stumbling block. Next big one is, uh, this is number four, rites of passage. Which rites of passage come to mind uh, that you could think of would be barriers to cultural Christians. Sinner's prayer. Baptism. I said the prayer. Baptism, yep. Confirmation. Confirmation. All good ones. I know uh, a, a gentleman who was baptized over in Israel. Uh, doing one of the, the tours, the trips, you know? And he thinks that because he was there in the Holy Land, touched the water and was baptized, that he's good to go. And, and this guy is living so far from Christianity that it's not even a question of whether or not he's a Christian. But he'll tell you that because he did that, he was in the Holy Land, he was baptized by religious people, Christians, that he's God is pleased with that and that's going to be enough to get him there. But yeah, sinner's prayer, walking the aisle, raising the hand, signing the card 15 years ago at that convention that you were at, you know, that made you a Christian. So you always can go back to that rite of passage. This is a big, big, big barrier. So again, finding a clear starting point is what we're looking to do here, right? Sock drawer theology, sock drawer belief, um, and we have to remember, though, that we're not dealing with one-size-fits-all scenarios. And what I mean by that is we have to really avoid the temptation of falling into pragmatism, right? Saying, well, Dave said to do this, so if I do this, this is going to wake him up. This is going to make the light bulb go on, right? Um, so since we're dealing with this sock drawer type of theology, then what we have to do is 
is find out what they believe in the first place. This is step one. What do, does a cultural Christian believe to begin with? Um, this is a great strategy to use as a starting point. This will be that guidance that we're talking about that you can then use to then strategize an approach. So we don't want to just jump to the approach because it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario, right? First, you've got to break down, well, what do they even believe? Um, I've used this, this example before, but it's, it's such a great example of our, our sound stuff here that, that is within the walls of this building. All of our wires, the way it was programmed, the way our Wi-Fi all connects to things. And we never finished it, and it's creating problems. So we had to hire a professional company to come in and say, hey, we kind of want this done differently. We want it done based off your recommendation because we know your way is right because you're the professional. Well, they spent all they've done so far. They haven't fixed one thing. Because all the time they've been spending has been going in all the walls and looking at how it's wired in the first place. They, they have to do that to figure out, well, how's it even communicating? How is the sanctuary communicating with this, right? And it's a great illustration of what we have to do when we're approaching these evangelistic conversations with cultural Christians. What, what's behind the walls? What's under the hood? What are we dealing with here? <laughs> do, they, do they think Jesus was just a human being? Do they think that he wasn't God at all? All these things are very important to understand. So this is known as theological triage. I love this word. Remember this. Of anything that you could take away from this lesson, this will really help you. Think of theological triage. This helps you get down to the nitty-gritty, right? Uh, understanding what does this person believe? What does this person know about Jesus? What do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about the cross? What do they know about the Bible? Do they think the Bible's inerrant? Do they think that there's, there's errors in it? Do they think it's authoritative? These are very simple places to start to figure out where they're coming from. And as we highlighted some barriers already, I think it's safe to say that the most common barrier that we're often dealing with is ignorance, right? Just corrupted biblical knowledge. There's no foundation there. They don't know. So if ignorance is, is a barrier, then like, why would someone think that they have to confess sin if they don't think they're a sinner? Because sinners are the, are the bad people, right? Sinners are the people that are in prison. Sinners are the people that when you go drive downtown, you look and see all the corruption. Those are sinners, but I'm not a sinner. So how would they know any different? So theological triage is an attempt to understand what you're working with and then help establish common ground. Common ground is a clear starting point. So think of theological triage as a two-part strategy. First, you want to understand what they believe. Understand what they believe. And I love the second part. The second part is, once you understand what they believe, help them get lost. Help them get lost. See, they must see themselves as lost before they can be found, right? This is that black backdrop that we talk about a lot when we talk about the gospel, is how can you clearly see something in front of you, the detail of your own sin and your own nature, if you don't have a black backdrop of corruption and sin, the things that are inside your heart. And that helps to reveal those things. So here's a helpful starting path that Dean provides in his book that can help work towards a gospel conversation when we're evangelizing. Start with the God of the Bible. Start with the God of the Bible. Best starting point to help get someone lost. And know with this too that the important question to ask is not, do you believe there's a God? Right? We're not, we're not dealing with this issue. They do believe there's a God. So don't even go there. <laughs> but rather, who is God? 
And more importantly, uh, this is a great question. Has he spoken? Yeah, yeah, there's a God. Great. Well, does he talk? Has he spoken? Has he given us a way to know him? Right? It's a very good question. So what kind of an opportunity does this make way for? If you ask them, has God spoken? Who is this God? How do we get to know them? What does this help do moving forward in the conversation? Yes, we get to open up our Bibles. If someone's like, yeah, God's spoken in, in the Holy Bible. That's how we get to know God. Excellent. Great. Let's open our Bibles and take a look then at what he is telling us. And Sarah writes, while the Bible might get you mocked by an atheist, cultural Christians claim a respect and even belief in the Bible. They will certainly have one somewhere in their home and perhaps Bible app on their phone. So once you have a focus on the word, open it up. Maybe start with the God of the Bible's holiness, right? We hear this a lot, uh, even in church circles and discipleship. Isaiah 6 is a wonderful place to read through with somebody. Let's talk about God's holy. Is God holy? Maybe they don't even know what that word means. And this is how you can help illustrate. Well, let's take a look at what God's holiness looks like. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. Imagine you're talking to someone and you're like, you know, who is God? Has he spoken? Yeah, I think the, the Bible, right? Yeah, great. Well, let's talk about his nature. Let's talk about his character. He's holy. Do you know what that means? Well, let's take a look at what that means. Let's read this together. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What are some things we can point out out of this, this verse here that can be helpful in understanding God's holiness? What do we see? Yeah. Absolute authority. Absolute authority, okay. Fear of God. Yeah, what's what's Isaiah's reaction? Yeah. Yeah, so this can help open up a lot of things, right? It can help to identify sin. It can help to give us a self-awareness of who we are before God. Once we have a baseline of God's holiness or we're able to kind of discuss it, let's go to Romans uh, chapter 1. We can then reveal that holiness, holiness then means that sin is serious, right? If God is holy, then sin is a big problem. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read 18 
through chapter 2. So God has, God has spoken. He has helped us to know who he is, how he ticks in the ways he wants revealed to us, right? He's made it clear what he demands. Um, and now we can look at that in the wake of our sin. So Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God, know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely only on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There's a lot there, right? What, what, what stood out to you as you're thinking of having a conversation, right, with a cultural Christian? Like what specific things? I'm sure there's a lot of different ones. I'm just curious to hear what, what things really got you there. Yeah. Um, I make up that a lot of cultural Christians as well. Um, Accepting or, yeah. Because yeah. it's the loving thing to do. Uh huh. And it made me think about not being prideful in my own spirit. Yeah. I am still sin in what I do daily. So not going into the conversation feeling Mm-hmm. That's a tough one to read. Yeah, Brian. He, he really goes after the teacher in chapter two. So it's easy to read chapter one and three. Yeah, all these people are sinning, sinning, sinning. But then in chapter two, he flips the script and goes right after the preacher. Yeah, that's a good point. He loves the big sins and the small ones. Yeah, lumps all sin into kind of one category. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe all that. And if I say very much of that to someone, that's the world to not be like. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's like a, a response. Yeah, I kept. The start of that list of sins is lack of thankfulness on your God. Before it even gets to the even disobedience of parents, it's like, so if God is that holy, are you then too much to fit? And they can easily say, well, no. I'm so okay with kind of a sinner. So am I. Yeah. Yeah. We're in that list. You're in that list. Yeah. We're not good. Yes, and this is why walking, like if you can open up the scriptures with somebody, what a great opportunity because you know the first thing that's going to come to their mind is like, well, do you steal? I, I'm too bad I'm not perfect like you. And that's when you can say, no, I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. I'm right there with you. And, and, and all this that it's talking about, I can't obey the law, right? Because that's what we're bringing into question here is the law up against God's holiness. And um, yeah, I showed one of their videos here. If it, are you familiar with Way of the Master with Ray Comfort and his Living Water Ministries? Watch those on YouTube. Those are fantastic. Those I can watch those over and over and over again. And again, we're not looking at pragmatism. That man, if we just talk this gospel track, if we go through these questions, oh, we're gonna get them. You know, we're gonna put them in a corner, and they're not gonna know where to go, and we're gonna win. Like we want, we don't want to look at it that way in arrogance. But his strategy is great because what he's doing is he's, he's setting up God's holiness and he's getting them to self basically admit against God's law that they're lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers. And I don't know if a cultural Christian, if that would be the first thing that would come to their mind when they're thinking of their relationship with God, that they're a lawbreaker. And then we can use that ugly word that people hate to hear, sinner, right? Trying to get people to understand that they're not a sinner when they sin. That, that, that they sin because they are a sinner. And there's a big difference between those two. So that's what we're getting at, our nature. Uh, and Sarah has a great quote here. Um, he says, as a middle school student, just starting my teenage years, I would have never considered myself a sinner. Did I occasionally do something wrong that would cause my parents to send me to my room all night? Yes. But what's the big deal? I served my punishment by missing out on the movie or whatever my friends were doing. I would have my privileges back in the morning. Sinning was something reserved for really bad people, like the ones I learned about in my mainline Protestant Sunday school. Goliath, Nebuchadnezzar, and Jonah before the fish swallowed him. Those were the bad guys. I wasn't a sinner because I went to church, prayed before dinner, and did more good deeds than bad. I was also an Sarah, and we are good people after all. If the most important thing about me was what came to my mind when I thought about God, I wasn't worshiping the God of the Bible. I was giving occasional nods to a superhero character who beat the bad guys in the Old Testament, but was also kind of like Santa who would answer my bedtime prayers if I stayed off the naughty list. Falling on the right side of the list usually meant not being that bad, like the bully at school or the kid that always got put in timeout during recess time on the playground. It's a good quote, huh? And I love how this is a personal reflection of his own life. And we can share those things when we're evangelizing a cultural Christian, right? I mean, exposing our shortcomings and our testimony. Testimonies are a great way to share the gospel. Especially if a lot of us as Americans, even within all the different age categories represented in this room, have maybe brushed up against cultural Christianity at one point. 
You know, we, we understand it. We know. We know when that light bulb turned on and we know how far off the compass we were. So getting a cultural Christian lost is helping them to understand that morality is not determined by how they see themselves when they look in the mirror. And morality is not determined by how public perceives them, how their coworkers perceive them, right? It's very personal. It's, it's determined by what? Morality is determined by, by God, what God says. Has he spoken? Great question to keep bringing up. Has God spoken? Well, what does he say? Well, let's look at it. So these all help to provide a starting point. Um, the authority of God's word. He has spoken. He is holiness. He's holy. So his holiness then um, brings our sin into light. That it, our sin is very serious in light of a holy God. And then we can talk further about then what does this mean about humanity as a whole, right? So lastly, we're going to look at some tips to consider as we continue to look at these starting points. Um, one, many cultural Christians claim to revere the Bible. Probably going to run into that, right? Yeah, no, I got six Bibles at home. The Bible's great. It's a good book. It teaches us how to do right living, um, you know, do unto others as you would want done to you. Great moral lessons in there. So we want to go a little deeper than that and make sure we highlight its authority, the authority of Scripture as a starting point. Uh, lovingly ask frustrating questions. Kelly, this is your favorite. What does this mean? I love this one because it really helps us to stop and pause. Um, when I read this book years ago, I, I mean, it like, has saved me ever since. Because I think in the moment when you're talking with someone, you want to have an answer. Like, we all put them on the spot. Instead of to say, be willing to ask something that might frustrate them in the moment, let's pray that the Lord would move it through reflect and think deeper. And it helps us to get engaged. So when we're asking the questions, I can see what they're really thinking and um, I think it's just a really good way for us to stop and pause and pray and then pause again. Like, let them read the questions, ask them to define the terms that you ask the question, mm-hmm. that will be the five more things to say, well, what do you mean by loving? What do you mean by truth? Yeah. You know, there's just lots of great opportunities to continue the conversation, but understand instead of thinking like, well, we're talking about two completely different things here. Yeah. Lovingly ask frustrating questions. Um, I would say this is one of the most important tips in, in all of this, this series because we can easily too, and I've done this so many times, we can easily just come to them with everything we know. Like We know how to help you. You're the patient. I'm the doctor. Let me help you. Just don't talk and let me talk <laughs> and I'll, we'll get you saved. Don't worry about it. Um, but lovingly ask frustrating questions, like Kelly was saying, it's just so helpful to understand. It's, it's going to most likely open up so many rabbit holes and, and it's, it's almost going to be like, oh my gosh, we have so much. It's like when you're remodeling a house and you rip out the sheetrock and you, you see mold and you're like, oh, shoot. And then you kind of keep going down the wall and you just keep seeing more mold. Now you realize you have to demolish your whole house. That could very well happen. But this is a great thing that needs to happen when you lovingly ask frustrating questions. And again, the goal is not to prove them wrong. This is hard for me because I'm the type of person 
Uh, it's wonderful in marriage, by the way, that no matter how nicely I want to say something, it never comes out the right way. <laughs> never. I mean, I've, I've literally meditated on saying something for, for days. And I'll say it this way, this, wrote it down a couple times. Hey, how does this sound to you? And then, then it happens and it's just like a, a shipwreck, you know, every time. We want to be careful that we're not approaching this as if, because sometimes when you ask questions, what else can make it feel like? Like interrogation, Right. Like you shine the light on them. And what do you think about this? And what do you think about Romans 1? Approach it like as if they don't even know. Because most likely they don't. And that's why it's like, hey, can we read through a couple scriptures? And even reading through this lesson helped me to just earmark, you know, Isaiah. What we just read. Earmark, read through Romans 1, 2, and 3. There's so much great stuff there. And just ask, what do you think about this? What do you, what do you think the standard of good is? Like who gets to define that standard? Um, share your life with them as they're answering these questions. Like, yeah, I thought that too, but but then I read like right here, like let's read this together. What do you think that means? You know. So the goal is to direct them back to scripture. We want to get them in scripture. Ask about the Ten Commandments. Number three. This is again going to. This is what Ray Comfort does a lot. I think this is a great a great tip. Going to the Ten Commandments. A lot of people can shy away from the Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments can be very confusing to some Christians. I was thinking like, well, we're in the New Testament. Ten Commandments don't matter, right? That was Old Testament stuff. The Ten Commandments are our mirror, right? That's, that's what we look to to see we cannot fulfill God's law. None of us. So the Ten Commandments are very important. If you're not familiar with them, watch Ray Comfort, Way of the Master. Read the Ten Commandments. His approach is so good with this. So good. He does a great job. And, and he even does it to where they can kind of laugh about it, you know, by your own profession, you're a lying, thieving, adultering, you know, are you still a good person? And, you know, they kind of giggle about it. But how do you not know that as they're kind of laughing about it and talking through this, that the light bulb maybe is going off of, well, shoot. Because then he asks a simple question. Well, based on your own profession, that you're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer, you're a murderer, are you going to go to heaven or hell? And, you know, a lot of times they know the answer, but they'll be like, heaven, you know, and they kind of laugh about it. And they know they're... They, you're like, okay, yeah, I'd be going to hell if, if that's based on what it is. But you never know. They can walk away from that conversation. You could get nowhere else, and they could be walking away really thinking about that. And a lot of these interviews Ray Comfort does, um, I think he lives in Huntington Beach. Uh, there's a lot of people that just will break down at the end of it because they that light bulb goes on, and they really are convicted of it. And that's a great place to, to get somebody. So the Ten Commandments. Uh, number four, remember that cultural Christians claim a belief in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised if they're like, you know, if they're like, yeah, Jesus is great. I believe he died on the cross. This is great. Well, peel that onion back, you know, focus on the why. Why did Jesus have to die? Tell me more about that. What is what did the cross symbolize? What does it mean? And what's the point of a savior having to die if people don't need saving? You know, if you're, you're personalizing the conversation and you're like, well, do you need saving? Well, yeah, he, he, I already trust in that. I'm good. It's like, well, what about today? What about tomorrow? And then you can really get into to what the cross did versus just thinking of, you know, intellectual ascent as that ticket punch. I believe in my mind. Jesus is a great guy. I don't know anything else, but I'm going to be in heaven because of that. And again, this whole lesson, this whole series, Sunday school series is based on Romans, or not Romans, Matthew 7, right? Many are going to come to me. Many are going to come to me. 
and say, Lord, I know you. I knew you. I did all these great things. And he's going to turn them away. Uh, remember, too, that we're looking for conversations. We're looking for just even one little nugget. And, and I struggle with this as well. I want the full meal deal. I want to just bend in there. I want to just do business. I want these people walking away, going to church every Sunday after that. <laughs> Maybe a little Dave, you were right in there too. Maybe from time to time. But remember, we're just trying to get that light bulb to go off. It could be, that's why I like reading, like just reading through Romans one through two. And I would recommend reading through one, two, and three. Even for me, Annie, you, you had alluded to this. Even for me, I just, I want to go back to a couple of things like, whoa. I forgot it says this, or wow, that's pretty serious. Like, so it's even hitting my heart. Um, so open the Bible with them, read through it. You have no idea what the Lord is going to reveal to them as you're reading through those scriptures. And I, we did, we've done this in men's prayer. We've read through scripture a couple of times. I love that. And it's so cool to see, you know, 13 to 18 men will read through a certain scripture. And it's interesting to see what people pray that God reveals through just reading that passage. Yeah, Kevin. I'm just saying about this too, though. Not to make discount, but it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, we have to get the word. The hard part is, and people are just looking in 2019. And you look at surveys, like, a lot of people are just going to church. They're starting to discount the Bible. Even like, yeah. oh, the 2,000 year old book, or, oh, would Jesus say that today? Because things have changed. Or the Old Testament's worthless. And I'm like, cultural Christians are awesome. Hollywood. And the Bible through, but because they're not, because they're unsaved, they're going with the world and starting to like, well, maybe it's not all true. And like, exactly, right. we got to open the word, we got to pray that their hearts would soften. Because if we just go in and just like, I'm going to give them scripture, they might throw it back at us. Like, I don't believe that. Yeah. And it's just getting harder. Not that, I mean, it's only been four years since we wrote this, and it's gotten harder. Yeah. Yep. We have a lot of prayers. Absolutely. Yeah, and that helps you too when we're talking about, again, going back to Dean's wonderful illustration of GPS breaking down in the middle of New Orleans. Um, we, we need a starting point. And if, and if we're, we're bringing this out and they're like, oh, don't even, don't even bother with the Bible. I don't. It's just a book. Um, well, now you know where to go. Yeah, you were going this way. Now you're like, oh, hold on. We're going we're gonna to stay in this here. We're going to talk about scripture now. We're going to talk about God's word. And, and, there's a whole slew of different uh, things to talk about there, talking points. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and again, not one-stop shop, but I don't know. A lot of cultural Christians seem to have Bibles everywhere, and they'll be like, yeah, it's a good book, you know, and it's a good, it's a good, good thing to talk about. Yeah. I think a lot of the time we're thinking about the person who doesn't go to church, or, but we're also talking about people who go to church and they've been taught in the church that maybe hmm. part of the Bible doesn't really apply. Mm-hmm. Or they're not even being taught the Bible in their church. So that's the example, right? Yeah. We never so open this thing going, up. They're going to church. And, <clears throat> and they're thinking that that takes care of what I need. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. Um, it's it's sad. It's a, it's a shame that... You're right. People could be going to church all the time. And we're going to get into this. There's four sessions, um, I think, two, and then we go on a holiday break, and we'll do the other two. But we're doing four sessions on just beating up pastors, the church. We have a huge role to play in cultural Christians. And so we're going to, we're going to spend four weeks talking about 
how churches really foster cultural Christianity. So it'll be a good, good shift there. Um, so yeah, remember, we're sharing the good news. This was a great reminder as I was doing this lesson. We're not sharing self-help. We're not sharing advice. We're sharing good news. If you're sharing the good news with them, that's, that's all it takes. That's, that's what it takes. I love apologetics. I may get beat up for this comment. I love apologetics, but I don't think apologetics are the answer in sharing our faith and evangelism. And I know that that is, that goes against everything. There's some people that just dedicate their life on apologetics and these are great people. And I, you know, there's people that evangelize Mormons all day long, right? With apologetics. And that is wonderful and great. But at the end of the day, apologetics don't save. It's the, the power of the gospel is what saves through the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Romans 1, 14 through 17. This is the good news we share, right? Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by, by faith. So the gospel is the power unto salvation. And that Greek word is the same used as dynamite. right? It's a very, very explosive, powerful word. That's what saves. And so that's just my encouragement too with this lesson. These are tips and these are just things to help think about. And I hope it does help you in your thinking of even that this, this point of the starting point is a great, great thing to, to take away from this class, right? We need to find common ground. We need to find a starting point. Once we're, we've landed, we're in common ground. Now we can create an approach and start kind of dissecting what they believe. But share the gospel. It's the good news. Share your life with them as well. Yes, I'm a sinner. I was a sinner. I still am a sinner. That's why I need Jesus. I need an alien righteousness. That This truth of alien righteousness is huge, and it's not taught a lot in churches today. A lot of people are walking out the church doors thinking that it's all on them, right? That they got to be a good Christian today, and they got to work really hard. They got to do better, and it's about Jesus' righteousness. So um, the gospel is ultimately the power. Prayer is the ultimate uh, power as well. Pray for these people. Pray for these conversations. Um, this is our hope and trust if we're ever going to reach a cultural Christian. Uh, next week, Kevin's going to be teaching on the barrier of false assurance. That's a great topic. So make sure you come for that one as well. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word, Lord. It's, it's crazy of just even reading a couple chapters of it, what... <laughs> the surgeon gets his knife out and starts to do work. Um, it's amazing. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to learn to be in it, um, to be sound in it, to be Bereans, so that we can use this, Lord, as tools, ultimately trusting in you. So I do pray for anyone in this room that have people on their mind as we've been going through this, this series. God, I pray for you to open up these conversations, for you to work miracles in the lives of these people who are distant from you, who may not even know you. Um, Lord, have your mercy and grace on us, on them. We do pray for our service coming up, Lord, that you would be glorified in, in everything, in the music, the preaching, um, everything, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.